In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise, and ever enjoy his consolations, through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. In the course of his preaching, John the Baptist said, Someone is following me, someone who is more powerful than I am, and I am not fit to kneel down and undo the strap of his sandals. I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. It was at this time that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised in the Jordan by John. No sooner had he come up out of the water than he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit, like a dove, descending on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. My favour rests on you. This Sunday we're celebrating the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, which marks the end of the liturgical season of Christmas. We're in lectionary year B, the year in which the Gospel of Mark is normally read at Sunday Mass. The account of the baptism of the Lord that we're listening to is from Mark. We're almost at the very beginning of Mark's Gospel, at the commencement of Jesus' public ministry. And the baptism is how Mark introduces us to the person of Jesus. Now, Mark's Gospel is very tightly structured, even though it reads as being very rough and ready, very abrupt, in contrast to, say, the Gospel of John, everything that happens in Mark happens in a very precise order in order to teach us something about Jesus. And all the action in Mark's Gospel pivots around three great moments of revelation, three events called theophanies, where Jesus is revealed to be the Son of God. And the baptism of Jesus is the first of these three theophanies, these three great moments of revelation. The second is the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, where we read that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzlingly white. Then a cloud overshadowed them and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved, Listen to him. So that's the transfiguration, the second theophany. And the third is the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, in Mark chapter 15, where we read, Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was God's son. Baptism, transfiguration, crucifixion. They're all very different, but you probably heard what they've all got in common. These three events are united by the fact that at each one, Jesus is named as the Son of God. The identity of Jesus as the Son of God is at the very heart of Mark's Gospel, of what he wants to get across to us about Jesus. And everything else in Mark's Gospel either leads up to or flows out of one of these three key moments of revelation. 
of which our Sunday Gospel this week, the baptism of the Lord, is the first. So let's take a bit of a closer look at what's going on in this passage, beginning, as we always do, by examining the literal sense of the passage. What do the words of the passage literally tell us? What did the author of the passage mean to convey? Well, we'll have a look first at who we've got in this passage. We've got John the baptizer, and we've got Jesus, who is revealed as the Son of God by the voice of God the Father. Where are we? We're on the banks of the River Jordan, which is a very significant location in salvation history. It's a river that runs from the Sea of Galilee, also called the Lake of Tiberias, into the Dead Sea. And the exact place along the river where John baptised was probably a town called Bethany. We read in the Gospel of John, when John introduces us to John the Baptist, that this took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptising. Bethany across the Jordan is different from the town of Bethany near the Mount of Olives, where Jesus stays with Mary, Martha and Lazarus, and where he lodges after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But more important than the specific town along the Jordan River is the river itself, because the Jordan River is the river which the people of Israel had to cross after their deliverance from slavery in Egypt and their years of desert wanderings to enter the land promised to them by God. So we read in the book of Numbers, chapter 3, While all Israel were crossing over on dry ground, the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan until the entire nation finished crossing over the Jordan. And we see from this passage that the reason the Israelites can cross the waters of the Jordan is because God has parted the waters of the Jordan just as he parted the waters of the Red Sea during the exodus from Egypt, so that Moses could lead the people of Israel to safety. So the dangerous waters of the Jordan, which, through God's protection, the Israelites can traverse safely, are the final and ultimate obstacle, if you like, between God's chosen people and the land he has promised them. And it's particularly striking that the Israelites must pass through a river to enter the promised land, because water in the Old Testament is often symbolic of death, And the promised land is an earthly foretaste of heaven, of eternal life with God. So we can make links here with our own passage through the murky waters of death into the promised joy of eternal life of heaven. So the Jordan is a place that's hugely significant in the history of the people of Israel. And what's happening in the Jordan? John is baptising Jesus. What does that mean? We know that What we mean by baptism as 21st century Christians is a sacrament of the church at the beginning of our Christian life. But what was baptism in first century Bethany on the Jordan? Well, the word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse. And it's from the Greek word bapto, meaning to dip. So baptizo is like an intensified version of bapto. Sometimes it's used to mean going under or being submerged or overwhelmed. It can also be used to refer to various different pagan purification rites in antiquity that involved cleansing and bathing, both in the Greek and Roman world and in other cultures. But this kind of ritual immersion in water described by the verb baptizo was also part of the Jewish faith. For instance, we have the word bapto in Leviticus chapter 8, where we read, Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. That's bapto. And we have baptizo when Naaman the Syrian is healed of leprosy in the second book of Kings. We read that Naaman went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. 
his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. So that's the same Jordan River in which Jesus is immersed in this passage from Mark. Then we hear of Judith ritually cleansing herself in the book of Judith, chapter 12, where we read, She went out each night to the valley of Bethulia and bathed at the spring in the camp. Now, these acts of immersion in water that we read about in a couple of places in the Old Testament, they are not a gift of God's grace that creates in us an internal change, which is what the Christian sacrament of baptism is. Instead, these occasional acts of immersion that we read about in the Old Testament are an external observance that's linked to ritual purity. And so this is what John is also doing to Jesus. He's giving him an act of ritual immersion in water. And John's baptism, we're told, is linked to repentance. We don't get this in Mark's gospel, but in other gospels that recount the baptism of Jesus, such as Luke, we get a bit of John's ethical teaching. And it's clear that John's baptism was essentially a sign that the person being baptised had repented of their sins. It was the kind of outward sign that they had made an act of repentance. So having examined who is in this passage, what's going on in this passage, and where this passage is taking place, we can now begin to look at the spiritual senses of the passage. Where is God? Where is the church? Where is the human person? And we're going to discover that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We discover that the person of God, the Son, has entered into solidarity with humanity through his baptism, which in human terms is not necessary for him, but which opens up for us the way of salvation. We find the church and the church's gift of the sacrament of baptism in the description of Christ's own baptism. Our baptism is a sacrament to bring us into the life of the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, making us adopted sons of God through the outpouring of the Spirit. And all of this points us forward to the end of Christ's earthly life, when he will enter deeper and darker waters than that of the Jordan. He will enter the waters of death, so to rise to new life and pour out upon the world the grace of salvation. And this is where we find the human person, because it is the same journey of death to sin and rebirth to new life that we embarked upon on the day of our own baptism. So let's think first about where we can find God in this passage. In some ways, this passage reveals God very clearly. In others, it causes us a little confusion. On the one hand, there are ways in which Christ's divinity seems very clear. He is described by a heavenly voice, the voice of the Father, as my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And before Jesus is baptised, John the Baptist promises that someone is following me, someone who is more powerful than I am, and I am not fit to kneel down and undo the strap of his sandals. The undoing of the strap of the sandals is an action that a servant would perform for their master. So it's clear that someone very great indeed is following John, and the voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, confirms that it is indeed God himself incarnate in a human person, the person of God the Son incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, who is following John. But this passage does not simply reveal Jesus to us as God, as if that weren't revelation enough. It also reveals to us the entire Trinity. As Jesus is baptised, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, and the voice of the Father identifies Jesus as the Divine Son. So in this short passage, we have essentially the whole mystery of the Trinity laid out before us to contemplate. God is both one and three. 
He is the one God revealed to Israel in the Old Testament, and yet simultaneously he is subsistent in three persons. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three persons are each God, are each equal to each other in power and divinity, and are distinguished by their relations of origin. They're distinguished by how they relate to each other. The Father sends the Son, and the Spirit proceeds from both. The Spirit reveals the Son. The Son, revealed by the Spirit, leads us to the Father. Three persons, equally God, distinct in their relations to each other. That is how God is revealed in this passage. So on one hand, it's very clear where God is in this passage. But on the other hand, we've got a question. If Jesus is God, then why on earth is he being baptised? We know that John's baptism is a ritual linked to repentance from sin. But Jesus has no sins to repent of because he is God. He is, by definition, entirely without sin. So what's going on? Well, to help us understand this, we can look to St. Thomas Aquinas, who was a saint and theologian from the 13th century, who wrote a great work called the Summa Theologica, the Summary of Theology, in which he asks this very question, why was Christ baptised? And he finds his answer by looking at the writings of the Church Fathers, who were the great bishops and theologians of the first few generations of Christianity. And what these church fathers teach is that Christ wished to be baptised essentially to show solidarity with sinful humanity and to set an example we would be inspired to follow. Christ had no need to repent, but we do. He had no need to turn away from sin, but we do. And God chose to reveal this fact to us, not through a divine, disembodied, abstract command, but through showing us very concretely what to do through divine action. He shows us what to do by doing himself what he wants us to do. So St. Thomas Aquinas quotes St. Ambrose, a 4th century bishop, who said that our Lord was baptised not because he needed to be cleansed in water, but because he desired to cleanse the waters for us. Christ, the divine and sinless one, purifies the waters of the Jordan and then bequeaths us the sacrament of baptism, the sacrament of washing with water for the forgiveness of sins, as a gift. So in fact, the very fact that Jesus was baptised isn't evidence that he's not God. Instead, it's a sign of exactly what kind of man God chose to become. A man who lives in solidarity with fallen humanity in every possible way, who through his words, his actions, his example, and ultimately in the very gift of his life, given for us in the crucifixion, opens up for us the way to God. I mentioned earlier that there are three revelations of Jesus as the Son of God, three theophanies in Mark's Gospel. The first is the baptism, then the transfiguration, and then finally the crucifixion. Now, the baptism and the crucifixion have something very interesting in common, which is the language that Mark uses to describe them. In both the baptism and the crucifixion, we get the Greek word schizo for torn apart. So at the baptism, we read that the heavens were torn apart. And at Mark's account of the crucifixion, we read the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Torn apart and torn in two are the same word, the same Greek word, schizo. Now, the curtain of the temple, also called the veil of the temple, was what separated the rest of the temple from a part called the Holy of Holies, the most sacred part of the temple where God's presence was believed to dwell. 
Basically, the Holy of Holies was the closest you could get to God on earth, and it was separated from the people by a curtain or veil. So when we learn who Christ is, when we learn that he is the Son of God, this act of revelation is like a ripping open of the barrier between heaven and earth. To see Christ and to know who he is, is to have a glimpse into the very life of God, something hitherto hidden from humanity, and ours only through a gift of the revealing God. So there is a link Mark wants us to draw between Christ's baptism, where the heavens are torn open, and his crucifixion, where the veil of the temple, the veil to the Holy of Holies, is torn open. Christ's baptism is his immersion into the murky waters of the Jordan, and his crucifixion is his immersion into the darkness of death. Indeed, it's a link that Jesus himself makes between baptism and crucifixion. In Mark chapter 10, James and John ask Jesus for glory. They ask for seats at his right hand in glory. And Jesus replies, Can you drink the cup I drink, or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? So here he's describing his passion, his impending passion, as a baptism, an overwhelming, an immersion. Not an immersion in water, but an immersion in suffering and death. Both acts of immersion, the baptism and the crucifixion, are acts of solidarity with sinful humanity, a humanity that is subject to the powers of sin and death. But they're acts of solidarity that go far beyond being merely symbolic. When God enters into our human situation in the person of Jesus, he comes to change that situation. The Jordan, as we've seen, was the body of water that guarded the entry into the promised land. It was what separated the Israelites from the promised land, the land that God had promised to them. And it is a land that they enter only when God makes the passage across those waters safe for them. Now, when the Son of God is revealed on earth, God and humanity are reconciled. The separation has been fully and conclusively overcome. The barrier between sinful humanity and its loving creator God is conclusively broken down. So Jesus makes safe the path across the Jordan for us. Jesus enters the Jordan for us, just as he enters death for us and makes that path safe for us. He makes it possible for us to pass over to the other side, to the fulfilment of the promised land, which is the joys of heaven. That is what the baptism of the Lord reveals to us. It reveals that through the incarnation, the pathway to heaven has been made safe and clear. The age of salvation has begun. And the specific actions and language that we find in Mark's account of the baptism of the Lord show us that this age of salvation didn't just spring from nowhere unexpectedly. In fact, there was a whole history, a whole salvation history of God's dealings with humanity leading up to the incarnation and to the revelation of the Son of God as man on earth. So in Mark's account of the baptism, we hear that the Spirit descended upon Jesus to reveal him as the Son. And the outpouring of God's Spirit is, in the Old Testament, a sign of the eschatological age. That is, the period of history where God reveals himself and his saving plan. So we read in the passage that the Spirit, like a dove, descended on Jesus. In passages from the Old Testament, such as Joel chapter 2, we read God promising to humanity that he will pour out his Spirit on all flesh as a sign of the beginning 
of this eschatological age, this age of salvation. Then we have the words of the Father addressed to Jesus. You are my son, the beloved. Jesus, of course, is the unique, only begotten son of God who shares in the divine nature of God. But he is not the first in scripture to be described as God's son. Sonship was a status first applied to the chosen people of Israel. So the first and definitive use of son language applied to Israel is when Moses is exhorting Pharaoh to free the people of Israel from slavery. We read in Exodus God saying to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, Let my son go, that he may worship me. And this is echoed in the book of Hosea, chapter 11, where God says to the prophet Hosea, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So sonship is part of the language of salvation history, of God's love for humanity expressed through his election of the people of Israel. And this shows us that what is happening here at the baptism is part of the great story of salvation history, the story of God's election of a chosen people, Israel, whom he draws back to himself in order to draw the whole of humanity back to himself. In the baptism, we see that this great story of God's saving love is entering its final climactic stage. The baptism of the Lord ties into what has gone before in salvation history, God's election of his people Israel, his beloved son, and it points forward to what is to come, the passion, death and resurrection of the only begotten son of God, by which God's saving grace is poured out upon the world. So that's where we can find God in this passage. Let's have a look now at where we might find the church. We've seen that Christ is baptised to reveal himself as God made man and to exhort us by his example to seek baptism ourselves. And baptism, as we know, is the sacrament that begins our life in the church. Now, at first glance, it might seem that Christ's baptism has very little in common with ours. But in fact, the baptism of the Lord reveals to us exactly what is going on in our baptism. What happens at Christ's baptism happens to us sacramentally at our own baptism. First of all, the Holy Spirit descends. And the Holy Spirit, as we see from elsewhere in Scripture, is what unites believers in Christ together in him. For instance, St. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, tells us that, For in the one Spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. It is the same Spirit that descended on the apostles on the day of Pentecost to create the Church. And this is why we call the Church the mystical body of Christ. We have all been incorporated into, made one body in, him, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Now John the Baptist himself prophesies this when he says that he baptises with water, but the one coming after him will baptise with the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism we receive in the church, the baptism of Christ that makes us one body in Christ. This is how the Catechism puts it in paragraph 1267. From the baptismal fonts is born the one people of God of the new covenant, which transcends all the natural or human limits of nations, cultures, races and sexes. What else can Christ's baptism tell us about our own sacramental baptism? 
Well, at his baptism, Christ is declared by the voice of the Father to be the beloved Son. You are my Son, the Beloved, says the voice of the Father. And the grace of Christ, Christ who is revealed as the Son of God at his own baptism, that grace acts in our baptism to transform us into adopted sons and daughters of God. That sonship is shared with us as a gift of grace. In the first letter of St. John, John tells us, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And in his letter to the Galatians, St. Paul tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. This is how the Catechism sums that up. In paragraph 1279, we read that the fruit of baptism, or baptismal grace, includes birth into the new life by which man becomes an adoptive son of the Father, a member of Christ, and a temple of the Holy Spirit. By this very fact, the person baptised is incorporated into the church, the body of Christ. As we see, the catechism there describes the Christian life as a new life. And that leads us now to have another look at the link between Christ's baptism and his passion, death and resurrection. Even the links that the gospel draws between Christ's baptism and Christ's passion reveal something about our own baptism. Mark's gospel, as we've seen, links Christ's baptism with Christ's death on the cross, his crucifixion, through the use of similar language. We've got the verb schizo, meaning torn open, and also we've got the revelation of Jesus as the Son of God. And this puts us in mind of what Paul teaches about the sacrament of baptism in his letter to the Romans, where he links it with Christ's death. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul asks, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So just as Christ died and rose to new life, so we share in that resurrected new life through our baptism. Our baptism through which we, by the power of the sacrament, die to sin and are recreated as adopted sons and daughters of God. There's so much going on here. How can we sum all this up? How can we sum up what this passage, this account of the baptism of the Lord teaches us about what's going on in our own baptism. Well, we see that baptism involves the action of the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father, whose adopted child we have become. The Son, into whom we are incorporated, made one body. And the Spirit, who is poured out upon us. That's the whole Trinity acting in our baptism, just as the whole Trinity acted in Christ's baptism. 
And ultimately, what baptism does is it brings us into the life of the Trinity. Baptism and the Trinity are closely linked. It's not an accident that the great revelation of the Trinity, the great revelation of God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, takes place at the baptism of the Lord. Baptism enters us into the very life of that Trinity as adopted sons and daughters, united to Christ and filled with his Spirit. This is how the Catechism puts it in paragraph 1239. We read that baptism signifies and actually brings about death to sin and entry into the life of the Most Holy Trinity through configuration to the Paschal Mystery of Christ. And by the Paschal Mystery, the Catechism means Christ's passion, death and resurrection. So the revelation of the Trinity, the outpouring of the Spirit and the revelation of sonship are not things specific to Christ's baptism. They are what take place in every sacramental baptism, which is made possible by Christ's baptism. Christ, remember, sanctified the waters of baptism and set an example for us by being baptised himself. And so there's so much to learn about our baptism through reading about Christ's baptism. We see that the key difference between John's baptism, the ritual symbolic act of immersion in water linked to the repentance of sins, and the baptism that Christ bequeathed to his church, is that Christian baptism is not just about an external gesture, but about an interior change, an interior change in which our sins are truly forgiven. And this interior change is signified by the tearing open of the heavens. Heaven has been opened to us and we are truly united to God by an act of God, not an act of man. We enter into the life of the Trinity that was first revealed to the world at Christ's baptism and we begin a journey of rising to new life that shares sacramentally in Christ's own resurrection. So that's what this passage has to tell us about the church. What does it have to tell us now about the human person? Well, much of what it tells us about the human person, we've kind of inferred from what it has to tell us about God. Because one of the things we learn from this passage is how God wants to show us what we are meant to be by becoming what we are. God shows us what it is to be fully human by becoming himself fully human. When God becomes incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, it tells us something about the mercy of God, but also it tells us something about the value and dignity of the human person in the sight of God. God in Jesus has chosen to save us as a human being, and in doing so, he reveals to us something about what it means to be human. Now, as I've said several times, Mark structures his gospel around three great theophanies, the baptism, the transfiguration, and the crucifixion. There's not one moment of revelation in Mark's gospel, but there's several spread out over time. And this process of Jesus' identity as the Son of God being revealed progressively within time, this process of his mission being fulfilled progressively within time, is a process that becomes part of our own lives when we are baptised. Because when we are baptised, as we learn from St Paul, we are baptised into Christ, into his death, and into new life. And the course of Christ's life becomes the course of our life too. Our identity as adopted children of God, beloved adopted children of the Father, who share in his life through grace. This is something that is revealed progressively over time. 
The solidarity of God with his human creation is shown not only by his decision to be baptised, but also by what happens next. Because just like with our earthly lives, the story of Jesus' earthly life isn't over after the baptism. There's far more to be revealed about him, far more to be done by him. And as it is for our incarnate saviour, so it is for us as individual Christians. After we become adopted children of God through baptism, there's far more to be revealed about us, far more to be done by us in our Christian lives. Human beings don't happen all at once. We grow slowly over time. And it is the same in our Christian discipleship. That doesn't happen all at once either. Our identity as beloved children of God is made real and is revealed at our baptism, where we become part of Christ's mystical body through the grace of adoption. But it is also revealed in the moments of transfiguration in our lives, those moments of deep conversion, when the grace of God transforms us more and more into his dazzling likeness. And it is revealed too in our redemptive suffering, when we carry our cross in faith and trust through the pain of our own Calvary, just as our incarnate Saviour did. But our baptism is where it all begins. So that's our gospel for this week, the feast of the baptism of the Lord, the end of Christmastide. And so we end Christmastide with a deeper awareness of Christ's solidarity with us, the great mercy he has shown towards us in his incarnation, as shown by the act of humility and self-emptying that is his baptism. We see too that this baptism of the Lord also opens up a path for us, Christ has entered into the waters of the Jordan and sanctified them in an act that reveals the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and that makes it possible for us to receive a sacrament to bring us into the life of that same Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. And all of this points us forward to the end of Christ's earthly life when he will enter deeper and darker waters than that of the Jordan. He will enter into death, so to rise to new life and pour out upon the world, upon us, the grace of salvation. And it is this same journey of death to sin and rebirth to new life that we embarked upon on the day of our own baptism, when the Spirit was poured out upon us and we became, through grace, adopted children of God.